Let's talk politics with the national correspondent for New York Magazine, Gabriel Debinetti. Gabriel is also author of the book, The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Gabriel, good to have you on the program. How are you today, sir? It is a pleasure to be here. I'm doing great. It's, an, for it's an honor to have you on. Thank you for your time. Let me let me go back before I go forward. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, in uh, a later part of our show today, we'll be talking about... Um, uh, the Supreme Court uh, and uh, the two issues that are in front of it. Uh, let me just get your take right quick on on those two issues. Um, you you saw what everybody else saw last week. The court seemed skeptical of these arguments that Donald Trump should, in fact, be kicked off ballots in Colorado, Maine, and other places. Um, is that your read of what you saw? Yeah, that's exactly right. It does seem that whatever the merits, the legal arguments, it seems entirely likely, based solely on the questions that the justices were, were asking it during the during the discussion uh, last week, it seems likely that they're going to rule, and of course we don't know, but it seems likely, uh, you know, against the idea that Trump can be removed from a ballot. One thing that it seems a lot of folks were concerned about is the idea that states have the ability to deter- essentially determine on their own who should be on the presidential ballot, that, you know, it's not up to every single state, because, of course, if it were, it's a slippery slope. Perhaps if Colorado determines it doesn't want Trump on the ballot because of his actions, you know, it's a possibility that other states could find other, uh, you know, other justifications for taking other folks, including Biden, off of their ballots if they see it as politically motivated. No one wants to go down that go down that road. Yep. Um, I think some were surprised. It, uh, and maybe I was a bit surprised. I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about this still processing it. Uh, but as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, though, you saw justices from both sides of the aisle, if, as it were, yep. as we we keep saying the court is not political. Everybody knows that's a lie. <laughs> but but it, it, just, right. it just is what it is. But justices appointed by Democrats and Republicans. I mean, let me put it the, the safe way. Justices appointed by Democrats and Republicans, again, ask questions that seem to speak to their skepticism did that part as we say did that part surprise you a little bit a little bit i mean i think one thing that's clear is that some of the justices uh on the right-wing part of the court have been more open in their partisan affiliation or partisan leanings Mm -hmm. i should say leanings not affiliation than than some of the liberal justices though as you say at this point there's not really much no everyone understands it's a fairly political uh body the supreme court i think what you saw though is overall part of a, a posture where folks on both sides seem highly unwilling to, or what they don't want to do is be seen as determining the presidential election. They saw mm-hmm. what happened in 2000 when mm-hmm. they were you know, in the middle of determining that presidential election. And even though everyone on the court, all the justices obviously understand that everyone sees them as political now, they're still bending over backwards to try not to be seen that way, even though, again, we understand that that's just a big leap. Yep. When we come forward, um, that's the uh, that's the issue of whether you should be kicked off of uh, state ballots. It appears to every one of us who've been following this and covering it that the Supreme Court is not going to support uh, Colorado, Maine or anybody else that wants to kick Donald Trump off the ballot. You heard Gabriel say a moment ago they don't want to be seen as the court was back in 2000 deciding a presidential race. Um, And so uh, I think you can um, pretty much expect that when that decision does come, whenever it is going to come, uh, that Donald Trump will be on all uh, 50 ballots in all the states. That's my sense of it. That's Gabriel's sense. We could be wrong, but I doubt it. Uh, We come forward. We'll talk about the other issue the court is looking at. Uh, You recall last week on this program we discussed uh, the decision by the fellow appellate court uh, that Donald Trump uh, does not have immunity from prosecution regarding January the 6th. That lower court uh, gave him until today 
uh, to file his appeal, as it were, uh, to the Supreme Court um, so that they can take this case up. And we don't know whether they will or not, but the lower court gave Donald Trump until today to make that actual filing. We'll talk about that and a great deal more when we come forward in this first hour with our guest, uh, Gabriel Benedetti, uh, Debinetti, that is, on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Tavis Smiley and Gabriel Debinetti, who is the New York Magazine national correspondent and author of the book, The Long Alliance. We'll talk about that text later uh, in this hour. Uh, but uh, we were just talking, in case you tuned in uh, just now, we were just talking about uh, the Supreme Court and their skepticism, their apparent skepticism last week when they were hearing oral arguments uh, about whether or not Donald Trump should be kicked off uh, any state ballots, namely Colorado. Uh, but there's also many and others who would like to do that if they could get away with it. But uh, our, our, again, our sense is, our being uh, Gabriel and Tavis uh, and others, our sense is that's not going to happen. The, the court, again, uh, Democrat-appointed judges, Republican-appointed judges, uh, justices, both sides had questions that, uh, again, to underscore, appeared to underscore their skepticism uh, about that argument. So my sense is that Donald Trump will be on all 50 50 ballots in all these states, assuming that he is the presumptive Republican nominee. And I don't see anything that's going to stop that at the moment. So that's one issue that the court uh, is going to take up, has already taken up again here in oral oral arguments last week, uh, a decision forthcoming in that regard. The other issue that they're going to have to deal with um, is uh, the issue of whether or not Donald Trump does, in fact, have immunity from prosecution uh, for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Let me just set this up by reading three or four paragraphs from the New York Times. Uh, This story just out a few moments ago. Former President Donald J. Trump is expected to file a last-ditch effort today, Monday, in the Supreme Court to press his claim of total immunity from criminal prosecution when a fellow appeals court last week rejected the claim it temporarily paused its ruling. Um, so they, they, they said he doesn't have immunity, but they temporarily paused their ruling saying, I read again, that it would return the case to the trial court on Monday today, allowing Judge Tanya S. Chutkin, that's the black sister, uh, the, the black uh, judge in uh, all these trials that Donald Trump is facing, um, uh, allowing her uh, to restart the proceedings in her case that have been frozen since uh, frozen so far during the appeal. But the appeals court added that it would extend the pause until the Supreme Court rules. If Mr. Trump asked the justices to intervene by filling an application for a stay with them by Monday, that makes it virtually certain that Donald Trump uh, will, in fact, file such an application in the coming hours today, meaning that the Supreme Court will soon be poised to determine whether and how fast in his federal trial on charges that he tries to subvert the the election in 2020 will proceed. It has several options. The court has several options. Let me give them to you. Number one, it could deny a stay, which would restart the trial immediately. It could grant a brief stay and then deny a petition seeking review, which would effectively reject Trump's immunity argument and let the appeals court ruling stand. And again, the trial would move forward. Or it could hear his appeal on a fast track, as it is doing in a separate case, on uh, his eligibility to hold office. That's the case we just talked about. Or it could hear the case on the usual schedule, which would most likely delay any trial past the election. So there's a a setup that gives you a sense of what the case is about, what the options are uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court, I just gave you four options they have, uh, once Donald Trump, as expected, files this uh, uh, appeal this uh, these documents for stay later today. That's the frame. What say you, Gabriel Debinetti? 
Yeah, well, obviously we don't know what the justices are going to do, but as you said, you know, Trump is expected to file this motion. Uh, it does seem entirely likely that the justices and the judicial system overall, um, well, l- let me back up for a second. This this idea that he has immunity has been rejected over and over again, and I think most people, most legal analysts, would be skeptical of the idea that the Supreme Court would lean in any other way, even though, as we've said, it can be a pretty partisan body, leaning heavily towards Republicans or to the right wing. Um, that said, we know that the that the justice system overall, multiple courts have seemed to suggest that they do want to get a lot of these legal issues with uh, Trump out of the way as quickly as possible, one way or the other. They don't seem to want to drag these on, even though some judges have seemed to say, well, we're going to take all the time that we need on this. So it does seem that the least likely option is that the court would pick this up, but only in its usual schedule, which would ultimately seem that it would, what would be the effect there is likely that the trial uh, that Trump is, is part of would only take place after the election, which of course would mean that we could have a president who is on trial uh, if he is in fact elected next or this November. So it does, you know, I don't want to predict exactly what's likely here, but it seems mm-hmm. like we're going to get a fairly quick resolution to this, uh, or at least in the coming months we're going to know. And again, over and over, the idea that Trump has immunity has been rejected by, you know, legal scholars, judges, and the like. Yep. So that if any one of those options that they have um, they choose, uh, which results in this trial restarting sooner than later, yeah. then we could, in fact, have a verdict before November. All the polls, all the studies, all the surveys, you follow this stuff uh, as closely or better than I do, uh, every poll, study, and survey suggests that even though people are concerned about Biden's uh, chances at re-election, we'll talk about that in this hour. There's some new data out about that. And, of course, we all saw his flub last week when he, uh, hastily called this press conference to, to tell us that his mind was sharp and he made another mistake while he was trying to tell us that his mind was sharp. We'll come to that decision, uh, which I think was a bad decision uh, to do the press conference in the first place. We'll talk about that in a moment. But every poll study, uh, study and survey I've read suggests that even those persons who are skeptical of his chances to get reelected say in those same polls that if, though, Donald Trump is found uh, guilty of these cases in these charges, if he's convicted, it changes their view about whether or not he ought to be eligible to be president if he is convicted of something. So I guess the question is, and none of us has a crystal ball, but what, what do you think the chances are that this trial does get restarted in time for there to be a verdict before Election Day? Yeah, obviously we don't know. And there are, in fact, a number of trials that Trump is part of that could, you know, be part of this mix here. But this does seem to be the big one, this question over the, you know, his actions in overthrowing, trying to overthrow the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does seem, I think, more likely than not that we are going to see this case continue in the coming months. But uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly when we're going to get a verdict out of it. But I think most folks that I've spoken with in the political and legal worlds do think that this is the most likely one to be, you know, we, it's likely that mm-hmm. we will see some movement on this in the next few months, definitely. Yep, and, if, and, and again, if Gabriel's right and those experts are right, uh, that we see movement on this in the next few months, uh, that the court doesn't delay this thing uh, by putting it on their typical calendar, they don't kick the can down the road, so to speak. If they don't do that, this trial will proceed. There will be a verdict. If that verdict is guilty, it fundamentally changes people's views about whether or not he is um, e- equipped to be 
uh, uh, president of these United States. So we, sh we shall see. But those are two major cases. We'll talk more about this again in our third hour. But those are, I just want to get Gabriel's thoughts about that here at the, uh, at the start of the first hour. Uh, but those are the two major cases that the court is looking at um, as we speak. Uh, certainly we'll be looking at the second one later today. Uh, it could happen any minute now. Um, once Donald Trump and his legal team file that brief, uh, that those documents with the Supreme Court asking for this stay, we shall see. So let me circle back to Joe Biden since, we, since we're kind of already there anyway. So uh, this is old news at this point, but it's really not old news because this story has legs, as you well know. Uh, and that is the drama that happened uh, last week, late in the week, that we just get a chance to talk about today here on Monday. Um, so the, uh, the report comes out, uh, about Joe Biden in these documents and the report finds, uh, the investigator finds special prosecutor finds that, uh, Joe Biden ought not be prosecuted in his documents scandal. We all know that Donald Trump has his scandal with documents down at Mar-a-Lago and that's what he's being uh, tried for right now. Uh, but a decision was made in this investigation that Joe Biden didn't do anything that, uh, would lead to his being, uh, prosecuted. Uh, but in that report, that one sentence that he was uh, a, a, an elderly man who had uh, had a bad memory, uh, that one line resonated uh, any way more than the decision not to prosecute him. I don't, I don't think anybody expected that he was going to be prosecuted. But that line about his being elderly and uh, and having a poor memory uh, has resonated like nobody's business. The president immediately his team called a press conference to refute that because they know the political damage that's going to come from that one line uh, in that report. Uh, let me start with this, Gabriel. I thought it was a huge mistake, not just because he then flubbed and made a major misstatement while trying to convince us that he was, in fact, sharp. That's not even my issue. My issue is why did the White House feel the need so immediately to jump on this and run the risk of something just like that happening. I think it was a mistake to, 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 to jump as swiftly as they did uh, and, and, and get in that defensive mode. I think it was a mistake. That's my read. What's your read? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that exact take from a lot of people this weekend. I, I, I think the – I'll tell you my read on what they were thinking at right. the moment. You know, there's been a lot, a lot of talk about Biden's age. This has been a thing that's been bubbling up for a very long time. Whether or not you believe that he is, in fact, like you know, this feeble old man with a bad memory, as the special prosecutor said, uh, the reality is that clearly there was a calculus within and around the White House and the campaign uh, after this report was released that, in fact, this was going to be a political problem for them. This is not a White House that tends to do things, uh, you know, just out of quick reactions. It's very unlike them to have the president go out unprompted or unscripted and just answer some questions like that. But what you saw in his statement was that he was furious. You know, he is really tired of people questioning his mental acuity. And the reality is here, because like he always says, you know, I'm going to quote Biden here, he constantly is saying, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And whether or not you believe that he is up to the job of being president, as he sees it, and as certainly a lot of the people around him see it, it's not even a real question. First, he's doing a good job in their eyes of being president. But second, this is all political in their mind. They think this is a political hit uh, from, from a right-wing prosecutor, from a conservative prosecutor, and also that people should not be thinking about Biden in a vacuum. They should be thinking about him compared to Trump. And that's a case that Biden, Biden tried to make over and over, that you know, no matter what you think of him, he's better than Trump. He's more with it than Trump. He's less extreme than Trump. So that's, I think, the political context within which you see them rolling the president out and you see him speaking pretty angrily in front of the cameras 
uh, on Thursday night last week. He did obviously, as you said, make that mistake, and uh, it was not ultimately the you know most damaging political mistake ever. But clearly, by making any sort of factual error, especially on a matter of foreign policy, uh, you know he is in a situation now where he's going to be even given more questions on this. Yeah. And there's a bigger question now about what sort of campaigning he's going to do in the coming year. That said, again, again, they believe people around Biden believe that at the end of the day, this is not going to be the central issue of the campaign. Because voters will come to understand that Biden is with it. He may be slower. He may be certainly is older. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's no contest in terms of who would you rather have running the country, a slower Joe Biden or Donald Trump in his full effect. And you saw him you know, leaning into that himself by making his statements about NATO that we can talk about that yeah. did end up dominating the news this weekend, whereas Biden didn't. A, f- a few things in that regard before we move forward here. Um, yeah. Number one, I want to make a comparison, and you probably know where I'm going already uh, as a national uh, <laughs> correspondent uh, for uh, New York Magazine, but I want to make a, 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 a comparison to James Comey and the damage he did to Hillary Clinton in a moment here. Again, I figure you already know where I'm going there. But let me just ask you this. Um, there, there's so many examples I could give where Joe Biden Biden's message isn't resonating. He's done a, a, a pretty good job of stewarding the economy. The economy slowly bouncing back. He pulled the country back from the brink. He's restored our national standing, uh, uh, international standing around the globe. I could, I could list a number of things, and I'm a progressive. Joe Biden is not progressive enough for me, and yet I think he's done a, a, a fair to good job of managing the crisis that he inherited post-Donald Trump. I think it's hard to argue that. Having said that, so much of his message does not resonate. That is a great line. Compare me not to the almighty, but to the alternative. Don't compare me to the almighty. Compare me to the alternative. It's a great line. Why is that line not working? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and it has something to do with bigger questions about the media environment and how hard it is to actually get a message across in today's politics. But it also just has to do with the reality that he has never been a particularly strong communicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Biden has never been known to be like a soaring speech giver or anything like that, even back when he was a senator. You know, he was respected for other things, but never for the way that he communicated and got his message across. Mm-hmm. But I think the final thing, and this is a point that I hear over and over from Democrats, but in particular from people close to the White House and to the Biden operation, is that a lot of voters, you know, real people, that are, you know, they understand that there's an election going on, but they simply have other things going on in their lives, are not really clicked into the idea here that this is a binary choice between Biden and Trump. You know, I hear it every day from people who are interested in politics, but don't really believe that ultimately Biden and Trump are going to be their options. Well, they are. And of course, when People seem to understand that when they take in the full gravity of the situation, people are going to, and this is the Biden view, I'm not endorsing this necessarily, this is the Biden view, but they're going to look at things differently. They're going to say, well, Trump is simply unacceptable, so it doesn't matter what Biden's message is, as long as the message is at the end of the day, I'm not Trump. But the question of why he hasn't been able to get his own message through is one that bedevils people in the White House every single day. And they think it has something to do with the modern media environment, the way people have tuned out of politics in the post-Trump era. And there's not a lot of introspection, honestly, about the idea that Biden himself is not the best communicator yeah. and has never been. Well, when you call a, when you when you hastily call a press conference to show us how sharp your memory is, 
and how on point you are, and you confuse the president of Egypt with the president of Mexico uh, in that moment. That's a real problem. Uh, and again, we all make mistakes. I do it all the time. I've done it twice already in this program in 30 minutes. I've, I've fumbled twice already, um, and I'm nowhere near 81. Uh, and so it happens to the best of us. And yet, uh, to my point with Gabriel, um, that line of comparing him to the alternative and not the almighty does not work. And I think in some ways it's unfair to the president, but I, I digress on that for, for now. When we come forward, I'm not done with this quite yet. I want to make this comparison to the damage that this special prosecutor did to Joe Biden with one sentence and what James Comey did. Remember James Comey back in the day with Hillary Clinton? The good news for Joe Biden is that it happens early enough where he can get this behind him. If he doesn't keep, make, if he doesn't keep making mistakes, that is, he can get this behind him. James Comey's uh, one line, uh, his sentence about Hillary was so damning, so late in the campaign that she could not rebound from that. What's up with these special prosecutors who feel the need to put these sentences in their reports? As far as I'm concerned, that sentence had no place in the report. That's not a defense of Joe Biden. Why do you have to say he's an old man with a bad memory? That has nothing to do with the job you were tasked with should he be prosecuted for the documents. So it does feel like a political hit. I digress on that for now a great deal more to talk about with uh gabrielle debonetti when we come forward on tavis smiley for all the freedom loving folk this is tavis smiley i feel like freedom. he's rooting for everybody black everybody black, black. more of tavis smiley coming your way right now right now more of gabrielle debonetti coming your way right now he is a new york magazine national correspondent and author of the book the long alliance about the bromance uh, between Joe Biden and Barack Obama. We'll get to some of that before I lose him at the top of this hour. So I'm glad I got another half hour to unpack because there's more stuff to get to that we have not uh, uh, traversed as yet. Um, let me let me, let me me wrap up this conversation we were having a moment ago, uh, Gabrielle, about this special prosecutor and that one line calling Joe Biden essentially feeble and old uh, with a bad memory. And the way that one line resonated, the president and his team quickly called a press conference to uh, show that he was up to the task during which he uh, summarily made another mistake by confusing the president of Egypt and the president of Mexico. So, again, my view is that they should not have rushed to be on the defensive so quick um, and they wouldn't have uh, had that uh, self-inflicted wound had they not moved as swiftly as they did trying to show how sharp he really is. I digress on that point. The point I want to make now, though, uh, Gabrielle, um, is that James Comey, did the same thing to Hillary Clinton. One could argue that Hillary made a lot of mistakes in that campaign, and she did, uh, including not going back to Michigan, where she should have been campaigning in the final days. They wrote that off, and um, and she took a spanking in Michigan, and that in part led to her being defeated. So there were a number of mistakes that were made, no question about it. But that report from James Comey um, was was damning for her, and it 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 torpedoed that campaign one could argue in retrospect in a number of ways allowing donald trump to go on and win i say all that to ask what is up with these special prosecutors and why do they always feel the need to go above and beyond what they're basically being asked to do and why aren't they more concerned and considerate about the politics of what they write and here's the other question at least this special prosecutor had the, 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 the drama of James Comey in the rearview mirror. He could very well see and know that you write something in here that can be interpreted in any way that is political. It causes damage to the person that you are allegedly trying to clear. And that's why the White House 
and I understand that I'm empathetic and sympathetic on this point. That's why they see that one line as a political hit from a conservative special prosecutor. It wasn't necessary, and James Comey proved that a few years ago. I'll shut up. What's your read? Yeah, I mean, you, you draw a clear parallel here, and there's good reason for that. You know, I remember the Comey situation very well. I was yeah, much younger, I think, cover, a reporter covering the Clinton campaign for, for a number of years, and, and she was... She was hit really hard by that. But the difference with that one was that Comey was the FBI director, and mm-hmm. there was a big shock that he was, you know, essentially making what was pretty clearly a political statement that saying that she was irresponsible with her emails. And that investigation dragged on, uh, and it kept, you know, there were lots of drip drips throughout the campaign with various letters he was sending. You know, so there were a lot of people who thought that since then the tide had really shifted and there needed to be a clearer understanding of the. Uh, lack of partisanship needed in these investigations. But the difference was with this special prosecutor, Robert Herr, you know, he is a Republican. He's not, he, he didn't come at this. He obviously came at this as the prosecutor, not from a, a clearly partisan angle. But you see a lot of people close to the White House now saying, this was always going to be a partisan hit job. Um, and, you know, it's hard not to read part of this as political because, of course, the top line headline was that Biden was cleared. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't do he, he, he he's not being charged with anything. Uh, and there are parallels to the Trump case, you know, where Trump is being currently, uh, you know, investigated and on trial for his willful, uh, you know, hiding and taking of classified information, which Biden was absolved of doing. Um so, you know, there's there's reason to believe that even when, you know, Biden was essentially cleared in, in some senses, or at least in the, the, the narrowest legal sense here, uh, he was still given a political slap on the wrist, which many people were saying, you know, including close to the White House, this is simply not the role of a prosecutor. And I think mm-hmm. there's something to that. No, I agree. That's not his role. Uh, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was writing, and he knew he ain't stupid. If he was stupid, he wouldn't be a special, special prosecutor. Uh, he knew exactly what he was doing, uh, and I think uh, the Biden team doesn't need me to defend them. But it was a hit. That sentence simply was absolutely not necessary, uh, and he's done exactly what he intended to do. Um, he, let me ask a question because you raised Trump na- Trump's name earlier. Um, there is we are, we are we are told by our friends on the right. That there has been, is now, and probably will be uh, for uh, for a long time in the future, uh, if you ask them, this so-called liberal media bias. Um, there's a liberal media bias that we are told exists. Uh, I, uh, Rush Limbaugh and I were talking one time many years ago, and I, there wasn't much, of course, that Rush Limbaugh ever said that I agreed with or, or liked. Uh, but at one and uh, but but at one point we were having a conversation. And I, I asked him, I said, Rush, why don't you ever have, I was just chiding him, I said, why don't you ever have any guests on your program? Why don't you ever have anybody come on and offer a different point of view? Why won't you engage in some robust debate on your show? I was I was needling him about why he always won't, would spend three or four hours a day just bloviating, talking all by himself. And he said, Tavis, that's a very good question. You know what the answer is? I said, what, Rush? He said, I am equal time. And I fell out laughing. It was a great line. I am equal time. So that's his response to this whole notion of uh, this so-called liberal media bias. Here's my question. If, in fact, there is a liberal media bias, why are we always focusing on Biden's slip-ups but not on Trump's slip-ups? He's done the same thing. He's doing it more and more often. If there's a liberal media bias, why the focus on Biden and we ignore Trump? Gabriel Benedetti? Yeah. Yeah, I think the question of a liberal media bias has so many different dimensions at this point. But Trump is what really, you know, over the last 
10 years now, really, has, has made clear that it's not simply a question of left versus right. You know, Trump has really challenged a lot of the ways that the political media in particular thinks about its role. And one of the things that he has done is just so overwhelmed, so many newsrooms, so many ways that we have thought about our job for such a long time now with the sheer volume of shock and awe and surprising, uh, you know, controversial statements, uh, outright you know, bigotry sometimes that we don't really know. And I'm using the royal we here. I don't want to mm-hmm. talk about myself. But, you know, newsrooms often struggle to really tell what is newsworthy and what is new. So you saw from the Biden operation, from the White House in the last few weeks, from the campaigns in particular, campaign in particular, people saying you can't just talk about how Biden's old and not mention that Biden, that Trump is essentially the same age, you know, just a little bit younger yep. and very clearly uh, you know, has not, you know, doesn't really string two sentences together in the same way, you know, that he's slowing down. And then you have him saying all sorts of truly dramatic things. You know, he said this thing about encouraging Russia to attack NATO countries that aren't paying their, their fair share of, of dues to mm-hmm. NATO. You know, that's not how that works. You know, now you see, I think, reporters sort of saying, well, now Trump is fully back. Uh, it's what you're seeing, honestly, and this is not an excuse, it's, it's an, an honest truth, is you're seeing newsrooms work out in real time what is news and what people totally tune out. And, you know, the reality is that a lot of people have totally tuned out of political news since Trump came to came to, to power or came to prominence in 2015 or so, in part because it's just so overwhelming, the sheer volume, the sheer amount of stuff that he's putting out there that would be totally shocking coming from anyone else. Yeah. So in some respects, there was a thought in a lot of places in a lot of corners in Washington in particular, well, with Biden, it's a return to normalcy. We can cover him like a normal president. The problem with that is that we're not in a normal political environment Mm -hmm. in in total. And so I'm not against the idea at all of covering Biden like a normal president. But there has to be an acknowledgement of the broader political context. Yeah, I I just think Donald Trump's getting a pass on all his flubs and slip-ups, and they're going in hard on the president. Uh, That's my read of it. But uh, this audience knows I've been sick for a long time of the way the mainstream media covers the horse race. Uh, It doesn't address the issues and oftentimes is not fair or balanced, pardon the pun, in its coverage. Our guest is Gabriel Debinetti, uh, New York Magazine national correspondent, author of the book The Long Alliance about the bromance between uh, Joe Biden and uh, Barack Obama. You heard you heard Gabriel say earlier, uh, use this phrase that many are using that, that about this binary choice that we have between Biden and, and Trump. Well, there are many of us who don't necessarily see it as a binary choice. There are other candidates that are running. And if you saw the game yesterday, the big game, uh, congratulations, Kansas City, you saw the big game, you saw the RFK commercial. He spent a lot of money, a lot of money on that commercial uh, to make it clear that it ain't a binary choice. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't expect that, but it was, <laughs> it was a bold move and, and, and not a bad commercial. Uh, flashback, throwback to his uncle and his, his father. Um, so if you saw the RFK commercial, we'll talk about that. It may not be a binary choice this time around. We'll talk about that and a bit more when we come forward. Gabriel Debinetti on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. When I saw that commercial yesterday during the big game, Gabriel Debinetti uh, from RFK, it made it abundantly clear to me that he doesn't think that this race is a binary choice, sir. Without a doubt. I mean, there are a number of other people who are running, and the question is not whether any of them can win, because I think it's pretty clear that unless something changes dramatically, 
they won't. But the question is, you know, every presidential election in modern history is essentially, uh, essentially determined on the margins. And if there are people who want to vote for RFK Jr., for example, in some of these swing states, that could have a very big effect on the ultimate outcome of this election. There's RFK, there's Cornell West, um, there's uh, Marianne Williamson, there's Jill Stein. There are enough people um, who are offering uh, voters an alternative uh, to your point that this could matter when it comes uh, to the margins. Uh, your sense of whether or not the frustration with, I mean, the one thing that's abundantly clear in all these polls and surveys and studies, again, is that people don't want this binary choice. Nobody wants a Donald Trump, Joe Biden rematch. And that's just incontrovertible. The data is abundantly clear about that. Nobody wants that choice. And so when when I read data that suggests time and time again that nobody wants to see this sequel, it makes me wonder, Gabrielle, whether or not many voters will, in fact, look to vote for an independent. And that was RFK's message in that commercial yesterday. Vote independent. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the question is, you know, when you actually dig into what these independent vote, these independent people, uh, candidates stand for whether voters will really agree with them. You know, he's not running on pure nostalgia. This is someone whose many of his views are pretty out of view, out of uh, line with a lot of independent voters. Um, and of course, it's incumbent on the main candidates, on Biden and Trump, but certainly on Biden primarily because you know his are the voters that seem more likely to go for independent, possibly. Um, uh, you know, to, to make the case that essentially not voting for him is the same thing as voting for Trump, even if, in effect, you're voting for Kennedy yeah. or you're voting for West or you're voting for Jill Stein or if no labels, the centrist organization puts someone out, you know, whoever that would be. So that's the basic math. You know, they're, they're arguing, yeah, there are a number of people whose names you can put in, but at the end of the day, only two people can realistically win. So if you're not voting for me, you're voting for him. Yep. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Gabriel Debonetti, I want to go into his book, The Long Alliance, and just ask him uh, in, in short order what it is in, in his text um, that came out a, a year or two ago. Uh, but it's relevant in a variety of ways in this campaign because it tells us a lot about who Joe Biden is. I'm going to ask him what from that book um, we should be uh, thinking about in this particular moment when it comes to understanding uh, who Joe Biden really is. And one or two other things I may get to if I have enough time. You're listening to Gabriel Debonetti on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Helping to, Helping make, to you make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Gabriel De- uh, Debonetti's book is called The Long Alliance, and it, it, it's a book that goes uh, uh, deeper. Uh, much deeper into this simplistic bromance notion, uh, this narrative that's been out there for a long time about Biden and uh, and and his friend Barack Obama. Um, there is this prevailing uh, this prevailing narrative, and I, I keep seeing it. Uh, this fantasy, if you will, uh, Gabriel, this fantasy that many on the GOP side have that Joe Biden ultimately will not be the nominee, that at some point the Democrats are going to come to their senses and they're going to, you know, demand that he get kicked off, that he step aside. They're going to go to the White House and have a have a session with him and tell him it's time to step aside. That's the fantasy that they keep advancing in all these interviews and all kinds of places on the right. Take me inside your book and tell me what we should know about Joe Biden that makes it clear that that ain't going to happen. He's he's, he's played the long game for 50 years, man. That's definitely not what's going to happen. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. My book is about the very complicated relationship between Biden and Obama, which everyone knows is very close and is, in fact, as close as any relationship between president and vice president in modern history, and certainly between president and former president, you know, as they are now. 
But I think one of the things that really I think people need to understand about Biden is, like you said, he's been doing this for a very, very long time. You know, in the public eye, as, you know, having been Obama's vice president, and that's true. But he had been a senator for nearly 40 years before that, had been in Washington for a very long time. They really have not always seen politics eye to eye. You know, there were times when Obama didn't think that Biden should be running for president. In 16, he convinced him not to. In 20, he tried to convince him not to. And ultimately, Biden was proven right. And Biden now really does have a chip on his shoulder about that. But to your point, I think it's important to note that Biden really now operates not as if he's running the Democratic Party, but as if he's channeling the Democratic Party. And in that sense, he still has Obama's influence in his ears. And he's going to be relying a lot, not only on Obama, but on the entire overall Democratic infrastructure. Lots of senators and governors are going to be out there campaigning for him. But also former presidents like Bill Clinton. And when it comes to the Obamas themselves, you know, part of this right-wing fantasy is that uh, Biden's going to be replacing the ticket with Michelle Obama. Now, let me say, the former first lady is absolutely not going to run for president. (laughs) She hates politics. It's just completely made up. But I think you'll absolutely start to see Obama himself play a bigger and bigger role as he did in the 2020 election, by the way, as this campaign goes on. You know, a lot of the people surrounding Biden, a lot of people running his campaign do come from Obama world. And while Biden himself has been playing this long game for a very, very long time, understands how politics works, and is a survivor, there's a lot to be said about the fact that he did learn about modern politics, you know, at the side of Barack Obama. They do in some respect, see the challenge facing the country right now in the same way. Yep. Uh, I got 60 seconds here. Um, I want to close kind of where we uh, were earlier in this conversation. And that is speaking of Joe Biden, uh, whether or not this hit that he just took from the uh, special prosecutor calling him basically feeble, old and with a bad memory. Do, do you agree? Do you think that it happened at least early enough in the campaign where if they manage it properly, it will not be an issue on Election Day? I think it's highly unlikely that this specific uh, report is going to be an issue on, on Election Day. The question of Biden's age was always going to be a big issue. The question is now just how he proves to people that like, he's still got it, that he's still vigorous. You know, he's going to be out there campaigning. I think there's a real debate going on in Democratic circles about what exactly that should look like now. His name is Gabriel Debinetti. He is the national correspondent for New York Magazine and uh, author of the book The Long Alliance about the relationship between uh, Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Gabriel, good to have you on this program. I deeply appreciate your insights. We'll have you back on, I hope, between now and Election Day a a few times. There's a lot to talk about this year, and I love doing it with you. Thank you for your time, sir. All the best to you. Thank you very much. Good to have you on. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.